you go ahead and come and share what the Lord has placed on your heart for us this morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad to see you up and going and surviving all the festivities of the last couple of days. Um, when I went to bed last night, I wasn't sure I'd be even be able to talk this morning, let alone sing. Uh, Wayne and Donna can attest to that. I was not in good shape, but I think it was just the fact I'm not used to uh, speaking as much and singing like we did over the last time. I'm out of shape. Uh, if I was a football player, that's what I'd claim. I'm going to try this. We'll see how it goes. I was tempted to lower my guitar about a step this morning just to bring it down, but I'm going to try it up here where it's supposed to be. Uh, this is a song that's been very precious to me over the years. It was way back. Paula's late husband uh, was a dear friend of mine. My wife and I, we were pastoring out in Evanston, Wyoming, and uh, I lured him to Wyoming. I knew him from a church in Houston. And he was getting out of the Army uh, right at the tail end of the Vietnam War and didn't know what he was going to do. So I said, well, have you ever thought about coming up to Wyoming? And he said, well, I hadn't really thought about it. And uh, uh, anyway, a little while later, a few months later, when we were back in Wyoming, I get a phone call. And it's this guy, his name's Mike. And uh, said, I'm thinking about coming out. And I said, well, come on out. You can stay here with us and uh, see if you like it, see if you want to stay. Well, he came and moved in with us for several months and uh, eventually got a job at the bank there in town and got him an apartment. And uh, when we, a few years, probably about five or six years later, we moved back south, uh, he stayed and uh, worked in banks across the state. And that's where he and Paula lived over in eastern Wyoming, <clears throat> and of course, you know how that all turned out. So, uh, but it was him, I owe a lot to him. Uh, one day he brought me a book he was reading, The, Remain the Memoirs and Remains of Robert Murray McShane. Uh, you know who McShane was, pastored in Scotland, in Dundee, uh, way back, well, the early half of the eight, 1800s and uh, had a marvelous ministry, but he died very young. But they, he was uh, just, according to everybody's testimony, one of the most unusual men that ever walked the face of this earth. And in the back of that book, there was a bunch of his poetry. I didn't know he wrote poetry, but almost all those old preachers did. And uh, one of them really, uh, Mike pointed this one out. He, he entitled it, I Am a Debtor. Well, I had to, you know, try to, uh, he just brought it to me and said, look, we were meeting like this in homes there in Evanston, and he said, can you set this to music so that we can sing it? I said, well, I'll give it a try. And so this is what came out of that. I renamed it How Much I Owe. Here's, here's the words. Listen, uh, hopefully I can get them out because I want you to hear the message. This is McShane's words. life is done when has set yon glaring sun when I stand with Christ 
Christ in glory, looking o'er life's finished story. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, but not till then, how much I owe. When I hear the wicked And hills to fall when I see them start and shriek on that fiery deluge brink, then Lord shall I fall in but not till then. When I stand before thy throne, dressed in beauty not my own, when I see thee as thou art, Love thee with unsinning heart. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, but not till then, how much I owe. Chosen not for good in me wakened from thy wrath to flee hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my those words mean to you what they have meant to me over the years. I'm glad that only had those four verses. I don't know if I've got another verse in me. But thank you for bearing with me. Well, I'm getting myself combobulated here. Let me uh, reinforce what Justin was saying earlier that more and more we're going to be confronted with this idea of who Jesus is. I, 
I'll make a confession. Now, you're going to think, you probably already think me a nut. You'll certainly think me a nut after this because uh, since I was a teenager, I've been fascinated with UFOs. I wrote my senior theme on that subject. Uh, so that's how long ago I've kept an eye on what's going on in that realm. Very unusual, very, uh, very strange stuff. And I am convinced there's a lot has happened in the last two years of this sort of coming out of the shadows into the mainstream. You've probably heard of some of the hearings they've had in Congress, uh, some of the stuff that's going on. I'm convinced there's something very important fixing to be dumped on us that we better be prepared for. And, and let me tell you why I'm concerned. I started beginning way back there realizing <clears throat> that a lot of what people were describing sounded to me like angelic activity. And you go to the book of Ezekiel, places like that, and they don't describe it like we do today because they were living in a different day. They talk about fiery chariots, things like that, but very similar the, uh, phenomena. <clears throat> I've gotten acquainted with a guy named Ray Boucher in Nebraska City, Nebraska, next door to us there in Wyoming. And I've never met him face to face. He's got cancer. He's undergoing chemo and treatment. So we come through Nebraska City, coming and going to our ranch. So I've been tempted to try to rendezvous with him, but he's not really in the best shape for having visitors at the moment. But uh, Ray Boucher served as the head of MUFON, that's the UFO network that investigates UFO sightings for the state of Nebraska for several years. And um, he is now, he's, uh, why we have a lot in common, he was a reformed Episcopalian. He's a reformed guy. Uh, he is now pastoring a conservative Lutheran church there in Nebraska. So we've got an awful lot in common. And I've spent a long time on the phone with this guy, sort of telling him what I'm thinking is going on. But he's had so much more experience than I because he's investig he had a couple of sightings himself when he was a teenager with his parents and then has talked to a number of people. But what is really fascinating is the abductions. You've heard of those, no doubt, the stories of people that are taken on board these crafts and physical examinations and almost always then the aliens are giving some uh, spiel and that's what is intriguing because Ray says in his investigations without exception the message that is con being conveyed to these abductees is the fact that you're about the human race about to destroy itself and we're here to save you. We're here to take care of you. And don't you put your trust in that Jesus guy. Now, they don't say it quite in those terms, but they do convey that message. They say, Jesus, he's one of us. Uh, he's in this craft over yonder. Or he's just a man. That's, and Ray says it's so fascinating to him that without exception, they're not attacking Buddha. They're not attacking Muhammad or Krishna or any other of these so-called holy figures back through history, it's always, without exception, Jesus Christ that they're attacking. Now, let me think. If I wanted to ask, who do I think might be behind a ta attack on Jesus? Of course, this is Satan's message. So I'm just uh, sort of giving you guys a heads up. I think something big is coming, and... Uh, 
I want all of us to be prepared for it. That the powers of darkness are very real. And uh, I'm convinced that most of what is going on is angelic activity and much of it fallen angels. There may be, you know, there are holy angels. Peter calls them the elect holy angels. And they are used by God to sort of keep tabs on things. We have them in Daniel called watchers, the ones that are uh, they're God's servants in that respect. But there's also powers of darkness that are out there and uh, don't uh, minimize the influence. And so this attack on the divinity of Christ is right front and forward of the message of Satan. Always has been, always will be. All right, well, let's get off of the crazy stuff and get to the good stuff. I want to, I love this setting where we're just here and we can just sort of have a little chat, okay? Uh, because I, I'm more relaxed with this and uh, informal and uh, I, and I've been wrestling with how to present this material because, again, there's so much, and I've got a bowl that I, don't, I know you can only uh, absorb so much. It's the subject of the believer's union with Christ. It is an uh, extremely important topic, and yet it is somewhat overlooked, I think. It's not emphasized as much as it should be. Let me show you how... Uh, prevalent that is, do you realize that Paul, I want you to go to Ephesians this morning, Ephesians, Paul uses this expression in Christ about 170 times, I didn't count them but I saw somebody did, that's what they came up with, 170 times Paul uses this expression either in Christ or in the Lord. And so you just might think if he repeats this 170 times, he might think this is rather important. And as he begins this letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesus over in the western edge of what we call Turkey today is where it stood. It was a rather large place, about the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, this is not a little small town. And remember Paul ministered there for Oh, a year and a half or two years in this, uh, we don't know exactly what it was, the school of Tyrannus it was called. He, it basically, it was like a church we did over the weekend, rented a place, have a place to meet. Well, Paul apparently in the church of Ephesus, this was the spot that they were meeting at, this school of Tyrannus, when it was not in use. And so some have speculated they might have met at night. Uh, maybe whenever they took a day off, the church would meet there at this place. But here is where the beginning of the Ephesian church took place. And now we find Paul writing to the church from prison. And uh, fascinating scene here that he displays. Because, you know, your perspective has a great deal to do with how you view things. Uh, we view earth from here. We're sitting on good old terra firma. And we're looking out among us. But have you ever seen the, the astronauts when they were on the moon? You ever see that picture? They call it Earthrise, where you've got Earth suspended just over the horizon of the moon. Uh, that's a different perspective, isn't it? That's the big picture. Uh, we don't ever see it. We see our little portion of ground right here around us, but they were looking at the big picture. Well, here in the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul gives us it's a big picture of what salvation 
is all about because he begins sweeping all the way from eternity down to earth and from eternity and time down to our situation in human history. So here's the big picture of what all of this is about. Ephesians 1, let's just start in verse 1. We'll plow for about 14 verses here, okay? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. That's, that's an interesting way of putting it. They are at Ephesus, but they are in Christ Jesus. There's the first time we encounter this phrase that is so important in the thinking of the apostle. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Here it is again, in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, through which he hath made us accepted, here we go again, in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, in which he hath abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, who is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Um, that's the big picture, and that's a big mouthful to say. A lot found here. But it is God's blueprint, as it were, his schema of what's going on in this thing called salvation. What on earth is God doing? Good question. What is he doing? What's the big picture? And, and most of us would say, well, he, he's doing all this to save my soul. Well, I don't want to diminish the salvation of your soul or my soul, but no, that's not the big picture. That's part of it, but that's not the big picture. Well, he's, he's, uh, he's going to send me to heaven where I can walk on streets of gold and have a mansion over the hilltop. Well, I don't want to diminish what you're going to enjoy in heaven, but no, that's not the big picture. If we ask ourselves, what what from the beginning is God doing? We, we see a certain phrase, and I just became uh, where I always use the expression, this is the covenantal statement of what God is doing. And it would go something like this. They shall, I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will tabernacle with them and walk with them. 
you, you'll find that, I, I can find it over here in Revelation 21, when New Jerusalem comes down, that's now God is fulfilling. But you'll see it all the way back through the Old Testament, over and over again in God's dealing with Israel. That there's coming a day in which I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will tabernacle with them. I will live with them, commune with them. Like it was in the Garden of Eden before the fall when Adam would hear the voice of the God walking in the cool of the evening. The communion and the fellowship. That's what was broken in the fall of man and that's what is to be restored at the end. And we see it in Jesus' prayer. You remember in John 17, before he goes to the cross, he's praying first for himself in the first few verses of that chapter. Then he prays for the disciples. He says, those you've given me, I've not lost any of them. None are, none are lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas. But then we get to verse 20 of chapter 17 of John. I'm telling it to you backwards, but, and I'm hoping you remember this. He says, I, I don't pray for these alone. But I pray for all of those who shall believe on me through their witness. Now that's a fascinating way of putting it. He has left the apostolic witness behind so that others, and I like that verse because that includes me. I wasn't there. I didn't see what the apostles saw. But they're going to bear testimony. They're going to give you a witness. Well, you say, well, where can I find that witness? Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, do, do you understand? That's what that is the apostolic witness of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying, I'm not just praying for them, but for all of those you are going to give me through their testimony. They're going to read your witness, their witness, and they're going to believe on me so that we may all be one. I and you, you and me, and I am them. And notice how we had that. Did you notice? Right smack dab in the middle of this text. You see that same idea in verse 10. He talks about this frame. He calls it the dispensation of the fullness of times. What he means by that is at the end, okay? In the final act, what is God going to do? He's going to get, gather together in one. All things in Christ both which are in heaven or which are on earth, even in him. That's the whole point, that God is working to bring us all into this spiritual union with Christ and with himself through what he's doing in this thing called the gospel. So I'm trying to get across to you how basic this idea of union with Christ and with God is to our understanding of the gospel. It starts, as we read in our text back in verse 3, with God blessing us with all blessings in heavenly places in Christ by the fact that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, we want to be very careful and we want to be very uh, attentive for what we mean by that. And may I say that uh, there's a hermeneutical principle that will help you understand the word of God. It's called the analogy of faith. You ever heard that? The analogy of faith. What it means is, is that you don't lift just one verse out of the Bible and say, okay, this is it. 
that you must compare Scripture with Scripture. You, it fits into the overall framework. I mean, after all, we believe the same Holy Spirit inspired this book from beginning to end. So it's telling one story, and that story all fits together. So you can't just take one verse. I mean, the Campbellites, you know what I mean, Church of Christ guys, I got one in my neighborhood they can cite verses that uh, seem to support their idea of a baptismal regeneration, you know, that you're born again when you're baptized. And there's verses that taken alone, yeah, you could see that. But when you look at the whole of Scripture, that just doesn't work, you understand. In other words, the rest of Scripture helps us to understand these particular things that are stated. It all must fit, that's true. It doesn't contradict itself. But if you take just one part, you remember the story in India of the blind men feeling the elephant? Each one got a different part of that elephant and got the wrong idea, right? They were all right in a sense, in this limited sense, but they were all wrong in their conception of the whole picture, and that's what we're dealing with here. So let's be careful when we say that we were chosen in him. Let's talk about what that means. Number one, some say, well, all this means is that God chose Christ to be our Savior. Well, he certainly did that, but notice that this is not the choice of a method of salvation, and it's not the choice of Christ so that, oh, well, then anybody later on who's in Christ is the elect, that he's the elect, so we get in him, we're the elect. Now, that's true, but that's not what he's saying. Notice he chose us. He chose a people, a certain people. And by us, Paul certainly doesn't mean everybody in the world. He's speaking to the Ephesian church. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Does that mean then that we have an eternal union with Christ? Well, yes and no. When you look at the whole of God's testimony, what we would say, and I think the most accurate way of having studied this extensively, the most accurate way of stating what's going on in eternity, not in time, but in, in eternity, remember this is before the foundation of the world, before creation, before any of us ever existed. You can't say that we were actually in Christ in eternity past, we didn't exist. But that what is happening is that God is consigning a people who will someday exist. You and I, in our point in history, placing them in Christ in some sense. It, I, I want to put it like this. It's our legal identity that is being placed in Christ. Sometimes if you read the theologians, they talk about Christ as our federal head uh, the idea that like Adam was the head of the race, so Christ now is the head of a new race. And just like what Adam did, it affected all who were going to be born of him. And it sure did. That's the reason we're in the mess we're in. That's why you and I are born sinners, because of what our head did. That in that same sense, Christ is the head of a new race. Not of a physical seed, but a spiritual seed, you see. And that what we're seeing is that from eternity, God has consigned to his son a people. He has made his son responsible. It's a lot of things that fall out of that. Number one, the fact that they are now his people. Ownership falls out of this. 
You remember when Jesus comes into, especially in John's gospel, you hear him saying something like, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. My sheep, in some sense, they're not even in his fold yet, he says. Other sheep I have that are not in his fold. I haven't even, they don't know me yet, but they're mine already. In other words, have already been given to him. What's happening here in this first verses of Ephesians is the Father is giving to Christ a people and he will be assuming responsibility for that people. I, I, I struggle for ways to illustrate this, but one of the ways is that God is making Christ our attorney. Now we think of an attorney like Perry Mason you, you young people even know who Perry Mason was? All you older folks, yeah, you, we grew up. That's, what, that's how I know about law and order, you know. I watch Perry Mason. But, you know, that's what comes to our mind, somebody defending us in a court of law. Well, that's certainly part of what an attorney does. But an attorney, technically speaking, is simply someone who represents us in a legal sense. We, we sometimes talk about a power of attorney, a legal document that we give somebody in case we're incapacitated, they have the power of attorney. That means they have the authority to represent us in legal situations. Maybe limited uh, to, for instance, uh, the purchase of a home, let's say. We assign power of attorney who can sign the papers for us as if they were us, and when they're signed, it's just as true as if we had signed the papers ourselves, right? They have our power of attorney. They are representing us in a legal sense in business dealings, in the court of law. And I believe the best way of thinking of this is Christ has made our attorney. He's, we've, God has given Christ our power of attorney. Or we can look at it in another sense. The book of Hebrews uses the term surety, that Christ was made a surety of a new covenant. Now, what's a surety? We have a wonderful picture of that back in the book of Genesis where uh, Jacob's family gets destitute. You remember the famine came? They didn't have any food, and the brothers go to Egypt to buy food, Right? Of course, you remember the backstory is they sold their younger brother, uh, Joseph, into slavery. He's now number two man in Egypt in charge of the selling of the grain. So when they show up at Joseph's court, Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And, and, and <laughs> I guess we'd call it Joseph's going to jerk their chain, chain a little bit. Uh, you know, he begins to quiz them. Oh, you came from far off, house, house. Well, what, what do you got back there? Any, got any other brothers? Well, yeah, we got this younger brother, Benjamin, but our dad loves him. He's the only, you know, uh, he's his favorite son now because he lost his other one, and, and uh, he didn't want to send him. And, uh, well, how would I know you're telling the truth? I tell you what, before I sell you in a grain, you're going to have to go back and get Benjamin. So these brothers have to turn around, go back to Canaan, and convince their father to let them take Benjamin with them back to Joseph because he's not going to sell us any grain unless we bring him. And Jacob is just dragging his feet. I've already lost one of those two boys born to my favorite wife, and I don't want to lose the other one. 
And Judah speaks up and says, I will be surety for him. What does that mean? I will take the responsibility for his preservation. Whatever it takes, that I'll do. I promise you he'll come back. I will be surety for him. Well, how did that work out? They get into Joseph's court again. And uh, you recall, he sold them the grain, but he slipped some silver cups and silverware into Benjamin's sack. And as they're going back to Canaan, his soldiers overtake them. And lo and behold, they discover this silverware in Benjamin's grain sacks. And so they're dragging him back now to Joseph. And Joseph is threatening to throw him in prison. And Judah speaks up and says, wait a minute. I told my father I would be surety for him. In other words, what's he saying? Instead of imprisoning him, imprison me. That's what it meant to be surety. It's to do whatever is necessary. You've made an oath, you've made a promise, and I will take the responsibility for whatever has to happen for that oath to be fulfilled. Christ is made a surety for us. In the new covenant. That's the problem with the old covenant. It didn't have a surety. There was nothing sure about it. It all depended on you and me. And no wonder it fell flat. It wasn't going to work. But the new covenant is a better covenant. Established on better promises. Says the book of Hebrews. And it's better because it has a surety. Someone who takes responsibility. That whatever it takes. To save your people. That I will do. And so if we ask ourselves this, and by the way, theologians call this eternal union by the term of a decretal union. God's decree has placed us, assigned us to Christ his son. Does that mean we are actually and really in the son? No, only in a legal sense. We don't even exist yet except in the mind of God. But God has already conveyed to his son the responsibility, the obligation for whatever it takes to save this people. Before we ever fell into sin, he was already given this responsibility. Now what does that involve? What's going to have to happen then? Well, we read about the second phase of this down here in Ephesians 1, if you're still there. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption. Through his blood. Notice we had the work of God the Father there in consigning us into Christ, to Christ's responsibility. Now we have the work of Christ himself. In time, he comes into this world, and some theologians call this a historical redemptive union. Because of Paul, you know, speaking of the fact that we were, uh, we've been crucified with Christ, we're raised with Christ, and so forth. I don't think it's any more of a union than what we had earlier. It's just now it's time to, shall we say, pony up. It's time, uh, Christ now, what he called in the Gospel of John, his hour, my hour is now come. The hour in which he is now, ob he's been obligated to pay this whatever it takes. And now it's time for that payment to be rendered. And he renders it. At Calvary's cross. Here's the price. That is paid. In order that the blessings. That God promised us in the beginning. 
now can come to us through the one who was our attorney, our representative, the one who stood in our place and substituted himself for us. He is our surety, doing whatever it takes that we might receive the blessing that follows. Notice a couple of remarks here, principles that have helped me through the years, and I hope they'll help you. That whatever is ordained in eternity must come to pass in time. You understand what I'm saying? The fact that it is ordained in eternity doesn't mean it's already happened, it already exists. It simply means that it is therefore ordained to come to pass actually in time. Let me give you a couple examples. God, before there ever was a world, ordained creation, right? He ordained to create the heavens and the earth. Does that mean the heavens and the earth are eternal? No. They had a beginning, right? That's the point of creation. The decree and the act are two different things. The decree ensures that creation will occur, but a creation must occur, right, in time. The same thing we're dealing with here. The fact that we're decreed in Christ in eternity past doesn't mean we're actually there. It means one day we will be, we shall be. It's certain that we will be, but here's the other principle. Whatever let me state it like this. I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with the philosophical statement here. I hope you grasp it. That the certainty of an event does not rule out the necessity of the event. When God decrees that something will occur, does not rule out the fact that it must occur. Those two things go hand in hand. And so what we're wrestling with here is, is it true that then at the cross of Jesus, I was actually there? Now, Paul will use that language later on. We're crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Does that mean Christ, I mean, Paul was literally hanging there on the cross alongside Jesus when Jesus died? Was he actually in union? Well, of course not. But remember that the one who hung on that cross is our power of attorney. He's our substitute. He's legally been made by God the Father, our representatives, in such a way that what he does is seen as us doing it. It is just as if we had been hanging on that cross. Because he is representing us. Is things becoming clearer? Not so clear? Okay. You with me? All right. I see Justin's got it, but not sure about the rest of you. <laughs> you say, well, how would you know? I hear you saying this, preacher, but, but how would you know? I want you to realize, and, and we're going to skip ahead a little. You still in Ephesians? I'm trying to keep you from having to run all over the Bible like I did to you over the weekend. A little later in Ephesians chapter 2, Notice he says here, and you hath he quickened, that means raised to life, resurrected to life. Justin read that prophecy of it, Ezekiel 37. 
dry bones, being raised to life. You, he says, you saints there in Ephesus, has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. That's your actual state. That's your real state. In other words, we would assume if union with Christ in the sense that Paul means it happens in eternity past, we were never dead. We were always in union with the Son of God who is himself life. That's what eternal life is. It's to know Christ. It's to be in union with this one who is life. But notice that Paul here is speaking to folks who are the elect, who were chosen in Christ for the foundation of the world, and he says you were dead in trespasses and sins. And he goes on to describe that state of deadness. You were walking, he says, according to the course of the world. You were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit working in the children of disobedience. You were walking in verse 3 according to the desires and lust of your flesh and your mind. And notice the last phrase of verse 3. And were by nature the children of wrath even as others. In other words, this is their actual state. They are lost. They are dead in sins. They are under God's wrath. Even though chosen in Christ for the foundation of the world, And though they are destined for life, they are destined for salvation, they don't have it yet. They're under God's wrath. He says, just like everybody else. This isn't pretend. We were children of wrath, just like everybody else. As long as we're outside of Christ, we're under the wrath of God. You remember the last verse of John, you know, we talk about John 3, 16 all the time. A very important verse is John 3.36, that he that believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides, remains on him. It's not that one of these days you're going to be under God's wrath. As long as you're outside of Christ, God's wrath abides on you, rests on you. And so it is with these Ephesian saints. And yet he goes on to say, but God who's rich in mercy for his great love, when we were dead in sins, he's quickened us Christ, he's raised us up, by grace we are saved. You see how what was decreed in eternity is now working itself out in time among the Ephesian saints. So yes, there is a decretal union with Christ where he is made our representative that's what qualifies him to be our substitute. That God himself has construed his son as our attorney. Or to use a better biblical word, he's construed him to be our surety. We didn't elect him. We didn't hire him. God the Father ordained him to that role. Well then, you say, well preacher, okay then. I see what you're saying, but when is it that we can say that I'm actually in Christ? The theologians, again, they like to use these big words. They ask, when are we in an existential union? If you want to impress people at parties, toss that word around a little bit. Yeah, existentially, I think we're in Christ at this point. Um, what, that, what does that mean? You hear a lot today about the danger of nuclear war and it being an existential threat. What does that mean? Well, it's a threat to our existence. When we talk about an existential thing, we're talking about our actual existence. So when are we in Christ existentially? 
When is it really ours? Actually ours. Certainly wasn't in eternity past. We didn't even exist, and we didn't even exist at the cross. So when am I actually in possession of Christ? We just sang, in Christ alone. Well, when are you in Christ? Good question. Oh, I, I, I didn't realize y'all were so uh, such an intelligent bunch. You asked such wonderful <laughs> questions, so I'll see if I can answer it for you. Did you notice as we continue to read our text, we saw what God did in eternity past. We saw what Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, did at the cross. Did you notice that down here in verse uh, 13 and 14, we have what the Holy Spirit does? Uh, We gave the Holy Spirit short shift over the weekend. We talked about two powers in heaven. And you say, well, Brother Mark, maybe you convinced me to be a Benetarian, but where does this Trinitarian thing come from? Where's that third person of the Trinity? Well, we didn't have time. That's another weekend study. But uh, may I just say that you see it implied in several places. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to Peter about the money that they gave, and remember they eventually struck dead, uh, Peter says, you haven't lied to man, you've lied to God. And he earlier said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. To lie to the Holy Spirit was to lie to God. That's seen there in that sense. So we really have not talked much this weekend about the work of the Holy Spirit. But here I want to emphasize what we sort of overlooked the last two days. You notice that Paul, as he's coming forward, and this, and notice that we started in eternity, but now we're coming into time. We came into time with the redemption in verse 7 of Christ. That's a historical thing. And now we come up to the point of when these come into a relationship with Christ. And I want you to see how he describes that here. Ephesians 1.13. Oh, let's back up to verse 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now that would be Paul and the apostles, the first generation of believers. But then he speaks about the Ephesians in whom ye also trusted, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Notice that now we've come from eternity past into time, into the point of time, and he describes it here, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believe. Now, if you're reading the King James like me, do you see that word after? Got it twice there in verse 13. In whom ye trusted after you heard the word of truth, and then in whom also after you believe you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of trauma. You, your, your version. Anybody got another version besides King James here? What you got, Justin? Huh? When? What are you reading out of? ESV. Okay. ESV says when you believe. Uh, literally, the Greek verb is upon believing, as you believed. It's not talking about some... Sa- the Pentecostals have made a lot of hay after this statement, after that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They say, well, this is a second blessing. It takes place somewhere down the road from the point of salvation. That is not what Paul is saying. It's not what the Greek expresses. 
It's basically upon hearing the gospel, the word of your salvation, and upon believing you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, how many sermons have you heard on the Holy Spirit sealing? I'm not talking about sealing like up there. Uh, To be honest, I'm not sure I ever heard someone take that topic and preach a message on it. It's a neglected section of the Word of God. What does it mean when you say that we were sealed upon the moment of faith, you see? Now, we had noticed the, the na- nature. We've been talking about eternity. Now we're into time. And we're talking about something actually happened. Everything else in this chapter is what God did. God put us, chose us in Christ. Christ came and redeemed us by his blood. Here's the first time we ever see anything man himself, the objects of this salvation, doing anything. What are they doing? They hear the gospel and they believe. You say, are they contributing anything? to it? Absolutely not. Faith isn't a contribution. Faith is simply the reception. It's uh, the hearing of faith, the seeing of faith. It's like your eyeball. It doesn't produce anything when you go into the museum and see a beautiful painting there. Your eye just receives it. Is that painting more pretty because you saw it? Is a symphony more wonderful because you were there to hear it? Did your ear produce anything? Did it add something to the symphony? No. These are receptive organs. That's all they do. They don't contribute anything. They just receive. And that's what faith is. Faith is the receptive organ of the soul. It's the way we receive something. And that's why it's called the hearing of faith or the seeing of him who is invisible. It's it's described just like your eyeball and your ears. It's how you receive it. And so what we see is now we've come down to our experience, in this case, the Ephesian saints. They heard the gospel, and by the way, that's why it's necessary to send folks out as missionaries and evangelize. Paul will enlarge on this in Romans 10, that they've got to call on the name of the Lord, but how are they going to call on him, and, and they haven't heard of him, right? Do you see the logic here? It's necessary from a human standpoint that the gospel message fall on your ear. You can't believe it till you have, I mean, faith is not just, I got a lot of faith. You haven't told me a doggone thing. Faith in what? Faith has to have an object to mean anything. And so in this case, it's clear that they heard this message, this gospel of Christ, and then they believed it. And it is in conjunction with their faith. There's two things going on. There's the human element of believing, and there's divine element called here the sealing of the Holy Spirit. All that's happening at once. It's not that I I believe the gospel, and one of these days maybe the Holy Spirit will seal me. Or the Holy Spirit sealed me, but I hadn't believed yet. (laughs) No. Although one is precedes the other in logic, they're both contemporaneous in time. They're all simultaneous. Let me try to explain that. Remember the, the man blind from birth at the pool of Siloam? Jesus put the spittle on his eyes and the clay, and he went down to wash. And he washed and he saw. Well, tell me, which came first, the healing or the seeing? 
Well, actually, they happen simultaneously. He didn't get healed and a few days later see. That's not exactly healing, is it? And he didn't see and a few days later got healed. No, the moment he was healed was the moment he saw. And yet, logically, did he see in order to be healed? Or was he healed in order that he sees? You see, both things happening simultaneously, but one is the product, the other is the cause. And so that's what we see here, that what is happening at the moment of our faith is happening. Yes, we are doing something, but it is in conjunction to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is bringing us to that point. He is the cause. We speak of faith being the gift of God, and here's how it works. Uh, again, we don't have time. Oh, I got time. But I'm uh, not sure about you guys. But uh, in, in John 6, for example, we have the bread of life discourse. And it's also that passage where Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Him that comes to me, I'll not cast out this. Again, here he's already got a people, and they're going to come. They haven't come yet, but they're going to come. And he says, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. Something's got to happen. They're not going to come on their own, you see. And he goes on to explain in the next verse, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. When we hear of God dragging someone to Christ, we think of, you know, kicking and screaming, you know, when a kid leaving scratch marks on the floor, dragging him over here to Christ. That's not how it works. God drags us to Christ by opening our eyes as to who Christ is. They shall all be taught of God. Everyone, therefore, that heard and learned of him comes to me, says Jesus. The Father, through the Holy Spirit, is going to open their eyes to see who I am, and that's how they're come. They're not coming against, did any of you come to Christ against your will? I'd have never met a Christian that said, no, I didn't want to come to Christ, but God made me. That's not how he brings us. But on the other hand, we do understand, don't we, that unless we had been taught of God, we would have never come. That we know. So notice these things are working hand in hand. And here we have got that explanation. But he uses an, an unusual expression here, the sealing. Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Most of you are familiar with a seal. Um, some of you ladies put preserves in a jar and you seal it, right? A seal can be a sign of ownership, a mark that is a brand. It can be a seal of authenticity, the good housekeeping seal of approval. Do you, anybody know what that is? You hear it all the time. Or uh, UL approved, you see that seal? The underwriter, laboratories, whoever they are, anybody even know who this is? But the idea that a seal tends to represent something that's authentic, in fact, that's used in John 3 of Jesus, uh, he whom the Father sent, he has sealed. He's put his seal on him, his stamp of approval. Sometimes it's used in the sense of security, to something to be sealed. Um, Semi-trailer load, trucker pulling down the road, has a seal in the back, uh, a little usually lead thing that 
shows that when it gets to its destination, nobody's been inside that. You've sealed the contents of the trailer, and here is the sign that that's true. Most of the time, when it's used as a verb, it speaks of sealing something inside something else. Pilate put a seal on the tomb of Jesus. Well, what was he doing? He's trying to seal the body of Christ inside that tomb. In other words, it's just not a mark. It's a mark that puts something inside something else. And by his authority, it's supposed to stay there. didn't quite work out like Pilate was hoping, but you get the picture, don't you? That's the idea of sealing something. Typically, it's, put, it's like your preserves. To seal your preserves is to place them in something and preserve them. The security of something inside something else. May I suggest to you, if you want to know when Paul says that you and I are actually in Christ, he's describing it right here by using this language, that ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's what puts us in Christ. And being in Christ, we're now preserved in Christ for all eternity. He uses other words in other places. 1 Corinthians 12, he uses the word baptized. You were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Baptized, we think of it purely around water, but this, this has nothing to do with water. The term baptized means simply to dunk or to unite something in something else. And here you're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Paul uses a different way of expressing the same idea. When were you baptized into the body of Christ? It must be at this point that Paul is expressing. So what I'm trying to get across, and I'm breeding this dead horse to death, I'm sure, is that this idea of being in Christ is something that happens in our own experience. We are seeing in time what God ordained before the foundation of the world. They were coming into the possession of what Christ bought and purchased for us at Calvary's cross. But may I remind you, he bought it, and it's his. It's not yours till you get in. He doesn't convey the benefits. It's like uh, another legal idea here. It's put in trust. You know what a trust, trust fund is? It's in trust. It's going to be yours, but you don't have it yet, do you? It's in a trust fund. So it is that what Christ did on the cross, he did in trust for us. But it's not ours yet. As he described the Ephesian saints, they're still dead in trespasses and sin. They're still under God's wrath until that point when they come to Christ. I, I emphasize all of this this morning not to just waste your time, but because of some very practical considerations. Number one, that we need to understand this in order that our focus be on Jesus Christ. Election won't save you. Christ saves you. 
Election may guarantee that one day Christ will save you, but that's not the same thing. A decree to save and a saving decree are two different things, you see. Election is the decree that we will one day be saved, but remember, certainty doesn't rule out necessity. It ensures you will be born again, but from our perspective, ye must be born again. Election may ensure that one day you will come to hear and believe the gospel, but from our perspective, you must hear and believe the gospel. Because apart from Christ, no matter what has been ordained, no matter what he might have done on Calvary, it is still not yours. It must be obtained. I think of what Paul writes to Timothy, that I'm suffering for the sake of the gospel why are you doing this, Paul? Don't you believe in election? <laughs> Don't you believe in predestination? I mean, why are you out there trying to convert folks if you believe in election? You ever heard that? I've had that thrown at me. You believe in election? Why do you send a missionary? But he says, I'm suffering what I'm suffering so that I'm, I suffer for the elect, for the elect's sake, he says to Timothy, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I realize I'm not going to convert anybody but the elect, but the elect, in order to be converted, must hear and must receive what Christ did for them. And they will receive it by trusting in the gospel. And so it focuses our attention on the main thing, that we never get our eyes off the necessity of coming to Christ in true faith and receiving him. Outside of Christ, I don't care who you are, elect or not, you're headed for hell right now unless something happens. You say, yeah, but God has taken care, he's ordained that. Outside of Christ, you can't say that. Secondly, that's why I go on to say this is what helps us understand then who the elect are. In Antioch of Pisidia in Turkey, Today, Paul was preaching, and uh, the crowd, he went to the Jewish synagogue, as was his custom, and then he got kicked out of the Jewish synagogue, as was his custom, and uh, said, okay, you, you guys are not going to believe this thing, so I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. And there in Acts 13, uh, it says the Gentiles were just thrilled. He's going to preach to us. And the next Sabbath, that man, the whole town came together to hear him. The Jews got jealous and uh, threatening him. But anyway, the Gentiles, when they heard this, said they rejoiced. And is Acts 13, 48, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. You see, this is how you figure out who the elect are. They don't go around with a big E on their head. They don't have a bumper sticker, honk if you love Jesus. That's not how you figure it out. How did they know that these were the ones ordained from eternal life? in the past, from eternity, because now they hear the gospel and they believe. That's our sign of who the elect are. And you will find Paul then in his letters referring to so-and-so, old brother so-and-so, chosen in the Lord. Well, how did he know that? Did he see the Lamb's book of life? No, but he knows that when they heard the gospel, they put their faith in this Savior. And secondly, it's our assurance that we are the elect. That this Holy Spirit, as we read in other places, bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. 
It prompts us to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa. That there's an instinctive recognition in the heart of those who have been adopted as God's children that God is their father. I've had people come to me over the years and said, I'm just having trouble with assurance of salvation. I want you to give me some assurance. And I tell them, that's not mine to give. I can give you some scriptures to look at, some things to think about, but in the end, I cannot be the Holy Spirit for you. It is the Holy Spirit's job to give you that inward testimony that you are a child of God. You understand? Assurance comes along with true saving faith. You can't say, I trust that stool to hold me up. I believe it will. Man, I'm, I'm, what was it said on it? No, I don't think so. Might fall. Wait a minute. You said you trusted it. You said you believed in it. You see how contradictory these things are. There is a measure of assurance. Now, assurance is like one of those wiggly lines on a graph, up and down all over the map. But there is a sense that saving faith includes a measure of assurance that I am his and he is mine. Because you can't say you've really trusted Christ as your savior, that you really think that he will deliver you and then say, well, I don't sure, I'm not sure. I hope that, hope that helps you see this, that it's the Holy Spirit's job to pat you on the back and say, yeah, you're a child of God. That's not my job. That's not your preacher's job. We can't do that for you. I would if I could, but I can't. You need this testimony of the Spirit of God. There's another sense in which the recognition that I am now one in union with Christ is very helpful and practical because if you're a believer in Christ, you're in union with him too, which means we're in union. You see, the body of Christ, by the way, the word body of Christ, always in the singular. Churches will be plural in the New Testament. Never the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4, if we just kept on reading, he says there is one body. There's not a whole bunch of Jesuses running around here. There's just one body, and all of us, no matter who we are, where we are, what race we are, what our economic situation is, if we're a Christian, we're all joined to that one body. And so, yeah, I'm joined to him, but I'm also joined to you. That's why we get together like this, to fellowship, because we are all members, maybe of a local assembly, that's true, but especially true that we're members of this one gigantic, worldwide, heaven and earth, all the saints who are joined to the same Jesus, all receiving life. Because at the end of the day, we're just a bunch of parasites. Uh, You say, I don't like to be called a parasite. Well, okay, tick. You know, see, my kids, we had this old shaggy dog back home, and they just loved to get him, find those ticks, big fat ticks, you know, and pull them off and squeeze them. Of course, they're full of what? Blood. Their blood? No, blood of the dog. In other words, a parasite lives off the life of another. Folks, I hate to break this to you, but that's all we are, is a bunch. Spiritually speaking, we're just a bunch of parasites. Our life is in Christ. 
But it is as we are joined to him, like a vine to the branch, uh, backwards, like a branch draws its life from the vine, we draw our life from Christ as we are vitally, in a living way, united with Christ as the source of our life. We're not the producers of life. We're the consumers of life. We're living on him, and you are too, and that's why we're all, it's like ticks on the same back of the same dog. We're all joined to the same Lord, and so united to him, we're not united to one another. And that was foremost in the mind of the Apostle Paul when he deals with this subject, that, you, that there be no division among you, that you don't, uh, it's like he uses the figure of the members of your, like your hands of your body. Again, cut that off, it's not alive, but it has life because it's joined to my body, right? That's why it's alive. And can you imagine, you know, this hand gets caught in the door. And this hand saying, well, I would help, but I, uh, that hand gets to wear all the jewelry. Yeah, I don't like that hand. It's the favorite hand, apparently. Is that the way your body works? Or does this hand instantly come to the aid of the other? That's what he's describing. That's what he's concerned about. That you all be of the same mind, united in heart and soul with one another. Because you're all members of the same body. You're united to each other. And so there is that practical benefit. That's why we're to assemble ourselves together with our brothers and sisters. Because we're all one, all united to the same Savior. And then one final practical benefit is that this thought of our union with Christ ought to keep us from sinning. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 6, he writes to the Corinthian saints. Chapter 6, verse 15, he says, Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ. Here we have that language, okay? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? He's talking about fornication. In Corinth, that would have been as common as going and getting a glass of water. They had up on top, I've been to the ruins of Corinth. There's a big mountain next to it, the Acropolis of Corinth. And up on top of that mountain was a temple to Aphrodite. You don't know her probably by that name. Venus is her Roman name, the god of sensual lust. And Strabo, the Roman historian, said there were a thousand temple prostitutes from that temple because a lot of prostitution in the ancient world were from girls. And a lot of times, what's so sad about it, these were young girls, probably slaves, who were given as a gift to the goddess. So their job now is to serve the goddess by raising money, of course, through prostitution. But this is how they worshipped their goddess. I mean, it sounds absolutely abhorrent, but that's what was going on in this place to whom Paul wrote this letter. So here you have a thousand temple prostitutes plying their trade on the streets of Corinth night and day. And Paul is giving them a reason to avoid that sin because he says it's taking a member of Christ's body, that's who you are, and joining it to a harlot. You say, well, wait a minute. 
Uh, that's not really what I'm doing here. Look at verse uh, 16. Know ye not that he who is joined to a harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. Yeah, that's what you're doing. And we realize that no, in a physical sense, we're not joined to Christ. But look at the next verse. For, for he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. You are in union with Christ your Lord. Will you take a member of his body and join it to a harlot? Will you take the eyes that belong to Jesus and look at this filth? Will you take the lips and the mouth that belong to Christ and use it to verbalize this horrible language? Do you see the point here? That the recognition that I am in union with Christ ought to be a restraint to what I do with this body. Because I am in union with him. I'm a member of his body. Do you get the argument here? Okay. One final verse. Because this is my trump card. I've been waiting to play it. Because you say, Brother Mark, how can you be so sure that this actual union with Christ occurs in time, in the point of faith, rather than back there in eternity or maybe there at the cross? Romans 16, last chapter of Romans, and it's filled with so-and-so, say bye to so-and-so, say hi to this one. People, Paul knows that he's sending greetings, and then at the end of the chapter, all the people that are there with Paul sending their greetings to the church at Rome. And Paul doesn't know folks there. He's never been to Rome, and that's the reason he wrote the Roman epistle, because he's going to come through there. He wants to visit with them, preach a little there, and then be sent by them on to Spain. It's a missionary letter, okay? And so here in this last chapter that most of us just sort of toss away, there is a nugget. You dig deep enough in God's word, you find some gemstones here. And it's right here in verse 7, Romans 16, verse 7. Paul says, salute Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. Notice, they're my kinfolk. We're both in prison. Salute them, who are of note among the apostles. They're well known who also were in Christ before me. Hmm. Folks, if we were all in Christ in eternity in election, or if we're all in Christ at the cross, none of us are in Christ before anybody else. This only makes sense if in the mind of Paul he conceives of the fact that we come into this real existential union with Christ at the point of faith. And all he's saying is these kinsmen were believers in Christ before me, before I was in time. And so that's my trump card. I don't know how you can say that or write that unless you understand it that Paul is using this term to be in Christ as the actual point of your salvation when you receive. Now I can go on and on. Don't tempt me. Don't. Uh-uh. Don't. Uh, because it's all about the quest of when do you have life? I'm thinking of John 5. He that believes on the Son have everlasting life and is passed from death to life. He that believes. 
He's passed. He's crossed over the Greek word there. He's run for the border. You know, Taco Bell's advertising jingle. You got to run. Well, they have gone across the border from death to life through receiving Christ, the Prince of Life. So, oh, don't ever give anyone any hope outside of Christ. But hold Christ up as their hope. Here's the one who can give you what you need. He's the only one who can do for you. Nobody else can do it. And he promises that as many as come to him, he'll receive them. He'll not cast them out. He said, well, what, is he worried about some of the non-elect coming? No, they're not coming. So anyone who comes to him, he'll receive them. He'll give them life. May that be an encouragement to you. Do you want Jesus? You can have him. Whosoever will may come. Doesn't tell you who will, but they all have permission. As many as come to me, I'll not cast you out. That's our hope. Well, I hope that this has sort of coalesced. I'm, as usual, I'm trying to put about three different messages together in one. You can probably tell, yeah, there's a sermon series in here somewhere. So I'm, uh, I'm inflicting the, whole, the lo whole load. I remember that old story about the rancher out west that uh, showed up for church one Sunday morning, blizzard going on. It turned out just he and the preacher showed up that morning. And uh, so the preacher looked at him after a while, nobody else coming. He said, well, what do you think we ought to do? said, uh, bad weather, you want to just go home? And the rancher said, well, you know, I want to go out to feed my cows. If there's just one cow shows up, I feed her. So the preacher said, oh, well, all right. Uh, he gets, have a seat. And the preacher gets up in the pulpit and preaches for a solid hour. And so as the guy's leaving, he says, yeah, preacher, he said, I feed the cow, but I don't give her the whole load of hay. <laughs> so you folks got the whole load in one city. But I hope this makes sense. The reason I'm so passionate about this is because this is so fundamental to your understanding of the gospel and the, to keep Christ absolutely central in your understanding. Let's pray. Father, may you glorify your son through all of this as we read these wonderful words that your Holy Spirit has inspired, written by the hand of the apostle you sent. May it force us to cause our thinking to be drawn away from the things of this life, the things of time and earth, to a fact that there is something going on beyond us, outside of us, something ordained from eternity past, something done for us by a substitute at a cross, the one who had our legal identity, the one responsible for us, took our place on that wretched cross to pay the price, to be surety for us. But then to remember that all that may have been held in store for us is never truly known or received by us till we receive Christ, the one in whom it was done. Help us to, therefore, whatever in our own individual sense, may we have no comfort outside of trusting your son. As we present the gospel, may we never get comfortable with or give anybody any assurance 
outside of him. May we, Lord, then wait on you that we know that we don't have to trick people. We don't have to deceive people. We don't have to use all sort of bait and switch tactics to get people to come to Christ, that your people will come and they will come responding to the message of the gospel that they've heard. May that be our confidence. Thank you again for what all this means for us practically, that we are then to strive to keep this unity because we are in union in our church body, that we love one another, that we care for one another just as one hand would care for the other hand. May we be there for one another in loving each other. And thank you for the prospect of head that this is a glimpse, as Paul goes on to say, it's just the earnest money. It's just the down payment of what's coming, of what, we, what our inheritance truly is, that what is waiting for us in glory is to be forever with our God, that he will be our God and we will be his people and he will walk in our midst and we will fellowship and commune with God. Thank you for the prospect of what lies ahead for us so that no matter what we're going through at the moment, no matter how difficult we, we hear of the problems of people that we love, even this morning, but may, may we remember that there's the big healing ahead, not this one that's temporary at best, but the big one awaits us in glory. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.